millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, the BBC's Africa correspondent, Andrew Harding, joins us to talk about his latest book, These Are Not Gentle People. Andrew Harding left London in 1991, aged 24, and has lived and worked abroad as a foreign correspondent ever since. He spent a decade in the former Soviet Union before moving to East Africa and then to Singapore as the BBC's Asia correspondent. Since 2009, he has been the BBC's Africa correspondent. He has reported from numerous conflict zones, including Chechnya, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burma, Central African Republic, Mali and Libya, winning many awards including an Emmy. He's the author of The Mayor of Mogadishu and Andrew's new book which we're going to talk about today is These Are Not Gentle People. Andrew, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. Good to be here. First of all, tell me how you first came across the story in this book. So in January 2016, I heard some little bits of news about a strange uh, event, a horrible event, it sounded like, in uh, the Free State, which is this big province in the central heart of South Africa. This story of apparently a big group of about 40 white farmers who'd surrounded two black farm workers and had beaten them to death. It was all over the news briefly. And I went down to the nearby town of Paris to hear the bail hearings. I had a bit of time on my hand. I just finished the previous book you mentioned about Somalia. And I had a little extra time away from the BBC. And I was looking to write a new book. And having covered the Oscar Pistorius trial, actually, I'd thought, let me try and find a a crime story, a true crime story that I can follow from the beginning. Because I was gripped by the process of, particularly the the court process of covering the Pistorius trial, but didn't feel I wanted to write a book about it. I wanted to find something a bit, I suppose, grittier, something that said more about South Africa in a way. And my first concerns when I encountered this case was that it was going to be one of those kind of extreme cases that pops up in South Africa from time to time, which is the kind of extreme right-wingers talking about a 
a white genocide, that white farmers are under attack. And then on the left, black politicians from the ANC and other parties saying, actually, no, this is all about white racism and so on. And I, I was worried that this story that I'd stumbled on might be a bit too simplistic and a bit too extreme to really get to the truth of what's going on in South Africa, which is, I think, in many ways, a lot more nuanced. But as I started to dig and spend a bit more time in Paris and followed the bail hearing, and as the months went past, I realized that actually there was a much more complicated story about a, a traumatized community and these these farmers and these farm workers. And that's what really got me gripped. So first of all, the town, Paris, and it has its, as usually in South Africa, its sort of satellite township, a place called Tumahole, next to it. What is this place like? It's very strange. It's, it's a real microcosm of South Africa, because a lot of these rural towns you drive through, and they really seem very neglected, very middle of nowhere, kind of collapsing and, and really very depressing. But actually, Paris is a bit of a tourist town because it's an hour or so from Johannesburg. It's on the beautiful Vaal River. So you have all these golf courses, these retirement homes, these villas. You have, if you like, the modern, wealthy, middle-class and largely white South Africa growing along the riverbanks. Then you have, and it's almost like geological layerings, then you have the old white Africana dorp, the town that was, I think, more than a, probably a century and a half old since it was founded. These little old white buildings, lots of churches, still very white. And then you have the old black township, as you say, Tumahole, and it's separated by about, I suppose, nearly a, nearly a kilometre of, of sort of empty land. And that separation is a clear reminder of the old days of racial apartheid, when the black workforce was literally kept away from the whites, forced to live up the hill on a bare hillside in much poorer accommodation and would only come in to work during the day. And then behind that township, you then have the next layer, the more modern layer, which is the informal settlement, which is the even poorer area. These are tin shacks where the poorest of the poor and many of the farm workers who were involved in the story I told, who live in really grotty, appalling conditions. And then beyond that, you have another layer. You have the want-to-be young, new black farmers trying to set up farms, trying to get a hold of the land, but really with these tiny little plots, a handful of goats and chickens. Beyond that, you have these vast commercial farms stretching out to the horizon, all, every single one of them in the Paris area, still owned by white farming families. And so these families um, that are going to feature in this story, at the point that this story is set, I mean, we're talking, you know, we're a quarter of a century after the end of apartheid here. These families in this old part of the town are still sort of like a bit entrenched, a bit embattled, and they're all a bit paranoid, I guess, because there's been a series of attacks, farm attacks, hasn't there? There has. I mean, this is a huge issue in South Africa. And in fact, globally, to some extent, Donald Trump, remember him? He tweeted about that. He tweeted about this idea that white farmers in South Africa are being targeted 
because of their race, that they're being killed, that there's perhaps even a white genocide going on, and that it's part of a sinister conspiracy, a political conspiracy to get the whites off the land. Because here we are, as you say, 25 odd years after the end of racial apartheid, and still 75% of all commercial farmland is owned by white farmers. The truth is a lot more complicated. The process of farm reform, of land reform here in South Africa, has just been very badly done. That's the government's fault. That's on the government, the ANC, and the bureaucracy. They've been very slow, and white farmers have, by and large, kept hold of their, their farms. Um, but a lot of farms are empty as well, and there's a lot of land available, but it just hasn't been done properly. So what you have is this growing inequality in the countryside where you have these relatively rich white farmers, islands, little archipelagos of prosperity. They have guns, they have money, and around them, this sea of black poverty, people in townships, farm workers, whose lives are getting, for many of them, a lot worse. And so it's kind of inevitable that when crime happens, it targets the whites because they are the majority owners. And that's simply the fact. I don't think there's a conspiracy. It's just the reality of crime in a very violent country. Is there an extra element of violence, of torture when it comes to the whites? That may well be the case. But I don't think there's any proof, no proof of a political conspiracy. And yet still, these white farmers, I think to some extent very understandably, feel very exposed, feel very vulnerable. And because this is a farming community, which we know farmers are often very conservative, slow to change, they are, many of them, harking back to what they see as the good old days of apartheid. There's a lot of racism handed down from father to son. And that was very clear from, really, from the get-go in this story. So there's an incident, and although what actually happened on that night is is heavily disputed, the violence is kicked off because, well, what do they think has happened? What What's the sort of the narrative that kicks off this violent incident? So an old man, a white farmer in his 70s, a sort of patriarch, has pressed his alarm button, and that triggers a huge reaction from all his neighbours. They're all linked in. They've all got their WhatsApps and their phones. And they all come charging towards his farmhouse, hunting for what they're told are two black thieves who just tried to rob this old man. They're not sure if the old man is dead. They're worried because they had cases of other farm attacks in the neighbourhood where people have been tortured and killed. So they're in a rage, in a fury, as they set out across the fields. It's getting towards dusk. And they're looking for two black men. And pretty quickly, they find them. Uh, two men, Samuel Chicha and Simon Jubeba. They tackle them. They arrest them, if you like. So the two men are unarmed. They're sitting on the ground. And it, it could all have ended then. But instead, this group of about 40 farmers, we know at least a dozen of them, then spent several hours essentially torturing and assaulting these two men with a variety of weapons and their fists, and their boots, picking them up, throwing them on the ground. A horrific, prolonged assault. And the two men, by the time the police arrived, and the two men were put in the back of a police truck, they were unconscious, they were taken into the local town, to the hospital, and by the next morning they were both pronounced dead. And these two men, they would have been known to at least some of these farmers, because they were farm workers. Exactly, and that's where it gets complicated, because, as you say, these two men were not 
unknown people. They were men who'd worked for the white farmers, the Van der Vestesens, that's the name of the, the clan of this group of white farmers who own most of the properties in the area. They'd worked for a lot of those farmers, so they knew some of them. And very quickly, the story gets complicated because while the white farmers are saying, look, we just arrested these guys, sure, we gave them a kicking, but that's the end of the story. What the black community, what all these two men's family and friends say was, hang on, no, these two guys went out to the farms on that afternoon because they were owed money by the old Ludi van der Vestes and the old man who pressed the alarm button. So they went to him, asked for money. Perhaps there was some sort of scuffle or dispute, but they hadn't gone to rob him. And very quickly, because of that, the case becomes intensely political. Tell us something more about this van der Vesthuizen family, because as you said, they're a sort of, you know, old aristocracy of the area. But the family itself is also split into into various different branches of differing wealth. Well, if you like, that's the next twist in the tale. And I don't want to give everything (laughs) away, but, but what you have is essentially a split partly along family lines between different branches of this van der Vestesen family, but also in terms of wealth and perhaps in terms of a degree of sophistication. So the initial reaction from all the white farmers is stay silent, destroy your mobile phones, get rid of any incriminating evidence, photos, WhatsApp messages, anything that could tie any of us specifically to the acts of violence against Simon and Samuel. But that doesn't last for long. And that's for a variety of reasons. But the real twist comes, and here we're back to Oscar Pistorius's trial, the real twist comes when the richer side of the Van der Vestesen clan decides to go and get legal advice from Barry Rue, who some of you may remember was Oscar Pistorius's defence lawyer during that long trial. And Barry Rue basically tells them this stay silent, wall of silence, nobody say anything routine is just not going to work. There's too much political pressure. And besides, if the prosecution really want, they can round you all up and say you were all involved in a common purpose attack. You can all go down for murder. And so the richer side of the family decides to betray the poorer side of the family, if you like. And that's when everything gets even uglier and weirder and, I suppose, more interesting. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Andrew Harding, and we're talking about his latest book, These Are Not Gentle People. And Andrew, as we were, you were just saying as we as we finished the uh, the first part, we're not going to go too deeply into what happens because I don't want to give away too much of the book because it's a absolutely rollicking read. This story is it's an amazing story with lots of twists and turns. But um, we'll talk about some of the the characters and aspects around the trial. And I wanted to talk about this group of South African police, which is called the Hawks, which is, is, is not someone I was aware of before until I, until I read the story. So who are they? So the Hawks are the kind of elite crime busters. They actually replaced a group called the Scorpions, who were disbanded about a decade ago because they were too good at their job. They were getting too close to some very powerful, corrupt politicians. And so the governing ANC basically voted to get rid of them. It was a huge moment in modern South Africa's fall from grace, if you like. But anyway, the Hawks are what replaced them. They're not as powerful as the Scorpions were, but they're the guys who try and go out and investigate crimes where there's real political pressure to get something solved or at least pressure from high up in the prosecution and police services. So they're, they're the elites. And they rolled up into town, uh, into Paris, convinced that the local police were basically brushing this whole story under the carpet. Nothing to see here. A couple of black guys died. A few white farmers got a little bit too angry. But let's have an inquest. Really, what's the big deal? And they said, no, this sounds to us like a race crime. We're under political pressure from the government, from the prosecution service, to start arresting some white farmers, to shake the tree and really start squeezing people. And that's exactly what they did. And they started confiscating phones and they dug into those phones' memories and they started unearthing some WhatsApp messages that really cracked the case wide open. And this is, it does become a, a, a politicised trial, of course. And, and one of the ways in which that's illustrated in the book is through the story of the initial magistrate on the case, who's a woman called Leshni Pillay. Um, tell us something about her and who she was and what happens. 
So she's a remarkable character. She's one of the, the kind of initial reasons that I really got excited by this story because when I went into her courtroom and the bail hearing was underway for six white farmers who'd been arrested, she was very open with me from the get-go saying, look, I'm coming under this huge political pressure. These local politicians from the ANC are ringing me up and saying, you've got to put these guys away. You can't deny them bail. These are racists. They've got to go down. And she was saying, look, this isn't Zimbabwe. This isn't a banana republic. There's law. There's process. I'm not going to put up with your political pressure. In the end, that pressure got so strong that she was essentially kicked off the case and in fact gave up the law itself. She abandoned her job and disappeared from the free state altogether from this province which for years under apartheid hadn't even allowed Indian people to live there. She was one of the very first Indians to come to Paris, to the region, as a young magistrate. And her sense of disillusionment, her sense that really nothing had changed since the days of apartheid was, I think, just very powerful for me. One of the other people that, that appears throughout the book is Ruth, who is um, Samuel, one of the two men's mother. Tell us something about your experiences of talking to her. So I was very lucky in telling this story because, you know, as this foreigner coming into an Afrikaner and... Um, Susutu community. I didn't speak most of the languages and I was a real outsider, but I was lucky enough in a couple of women, the accused number one's wife, Ricky, and Samuel Checker's mother, Ruth Kokota, um, who both really opened up to me and I think for a variety of reasons really wanted me to tell their story. And Ruth, uh, who was a housekeeper for her entire career on the Van der Vestesen farms, a very poor but very strong-willed, very intelligent woman opened up to me and really gave me extraordinary insight into her side of the story, if you like, and into the, the story of these two young men who died. And really, one of the great motivating factors for me in telling this story was to try to understand who these two men were, what sort of lives they led as farm workers in this extraordinarily old-fashioned community, and what they were really up to. I mean, were they thieves? Were they innocent victims? Does it even matter, given the treatment they received? And Ruth was, to me, this just formidable, brave, extraordinary character I was so lucky to have encountered somebody who really encapsulates the struggles of so many black South Africans who, who would have had such different lives, presumably if she'd had the kind of schooling that so many of her white counterparts had. You know, she had to give up very early, very poor family. So, I, yeah, I was very lucky to get to know her. And the other woman that you mentioned, Ricky, who is the the wife of uh, Berta um, van der Westhausen, who's, I mean, there's a, no, a number of people on trial here, but he's fundamentally the uh, the central figure of the trial as well. What was it like to, to talk to her then? Well, she's half Scottish, half Africana, and a woman who I found deeply sympathetic, like Ruth, somebody who realised that I was not going away as this trial and this case stretched out over four years a woman who was wrestling with a violent marriage, a collapsing family. Her young daughter tried to kill herself because of the strain of the trial, because of the 
sense of a community turning against her and her family. Uh, and Ricky basically opened up to me and allowed me to understand the extent to which this was a story, not just about race and racism, but also about male violence, about the brutality that I heard glimpses or saw glimpses of in so many of the marriages and relationships, black and white, in the free state, um, but who was sort of brave enough to kind of get on, tell me her story, and try to sort of pick up the pieces of her, of her broken family. So as we said, we're not going to go into what happens. The trial goes on for years and in, indeed has literally only just in the last few months come to some sort of conclusion. All of the uh, all of the participants wearing face masks, of course, because of the virus. So instead, I want to talk about the method of actually writing this book. And at the end of the book, there is an afterword where you talk about, you know, this idea of the narrative nonfiction, you know, how to how to portray the voices of all of these people across this extremely divisive trial in this extremely divisive country and portray it fairly. Tell me something about the process of of actually writing this book. So my previous book, The Mayor of Mogadishu, was, if you like, a more of a journalist book because, you know, I had this extraordinary access to this country in anarchy and, you know, my journeys in and out and so on felt like an important part of the process of telling that tale. But here I decided... Very early on, I knew I didn't want to be in the book at all. I wanted this to read like a novel. And so I sat down with all these characters over these years and I transcribed probably about a million words of interviews and of court transcripts and court testimony. And I, as you say, I tried to tell it from each side. But what I did, and this was a process that was really helped by my editor here, Alison Lowry, who helped me to come up with a formula where we didn't use quotation marks anywhere in the book. Instead, you're led to understand when people are talking and when they're not. But as I say, as you say in, in that afterward, what I did was I sometimes put people's words in their own mouths. Sometimes I put their words into thought bubbles, if you like, And I tried to recreate scenes from multiple angles where I talked to multiple people. But I tried to, in a way, get inside people's heads and not simply have he said, she said. And although I hope when you read the book, it's pretty clear how I've shaped the narrative and where my opinions lie. I also felt very strongly that I needed to give each character a sense of complexity of nuance and some degree of empathy, because otherwise it it becomes a very kind of cliched tale of black and white, of good and bad. And although I think there are some very bad people in this story, I don't think as a reader, certainly I'm not particularly interested in reading about people who are purely bad. I, I like to find out what's motivating these people, what are motivating those farmers who beat these men so viciously why were they so angry why were they so scared so i've been talking to andrew harding about his latest book these are not gentle people which is out now in the uk from mcleho's press and andrew has also made a short series for the bbc which can be found on bbc sounds called bloodlands which also details this same story andrew thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it thank you neil it's been a real pleasure
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.